So every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Uh, preaching uh, this morning is one of our pastors, Paul Ramsey, and our sermon text is coming from Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Like Dodd said, my name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, I wasn't here just a moment ago for sound check, so please forgive me for just a moment, as uh, I know James is shaking his head at me uh, while he gets things balanced, but my name is Paul. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you, you guys who are online joining us. Welcome to you as well. Today is the second to last Sunday in the season of Lent, uh, which means that next Sunday is going to be Palm Sunday. The Sunday after that is going to be Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And today, I have the honor of closing a sermon series that we've been walking through for some time now. This is going to be the 11th sermon uh, that we have preached on the Sermon on the Mount, which is this passage, uh, the end of which you just heard God's read there in Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching by Jesus on a mountain that extends through chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been casting a vision for life in the kingdom of God, as he calls it. He's been describing what human flourishing looks like as a result of the presence of the kingdom of God in the world. And today we come to the end of this sermon. 
uh, in our passage for, the, for, for today, Jesus doesn't include any new teaching per se in terms of how life ought to look uh, for those in the kingdom of God, but instead he gives us a few pictures to illustrate the importance of not just hearing the words that Jesus has just said, but applying them to their lives. The Sermon on the Mount is, of course, a sermon that, as we've seen for the past couple of months, is remarkable in its breadth, in its length, in its depth, in its beauty, but it's also remarkable in its simplicity. If I had to characterize the life described in the Sermon on the Mount, I would describe a life of gentle, confident neediness. It's remarkably simple. But what's been particularly striking to me as we've gone through this sermon over the past couple of months is that uh, this way of living, though it is simple, is remarkably countercultural. Don't seek to take care of yourself. Instead, trust in God and seek to take care of others who have need. Don't point your finger at others, which is holding them at arm's length. Instead, draw near to those who you have a problem with and be reconciled. This is really countercultural. And I'm afraid that's even true among many Christians today. And that's at least in part, I think, because this way of life isn't just countercultural as though it runs against everything out there. It's also counter flesh, counter humanity. It runs against the grain of our hearts as human beings. It runs against yours, it runs against mine. The way of the natural man, the way of the natural woman is one of self-preoccupation, of anxious toil of violence, whereas the way of the kingdom is the way of preoccupation with the things of God, the needs of others. It's the way of patient peace and trust. We can't really overemphasize the contrast that Jesus has so colorfully painted for us between the way of the kingdom and the way of the world. We also can't overstate the beauty of the way of the kingdom that Jesus describes. And yet, if we are to see this teaching actually change our lives and the lives of the world around us through us, we have to do more than simply sit in a pew or sit on a mountainside or sit on a couch listening to Jesus's words. And that's what Jesus pauses to address in our passage for today as he closes his sermon. So here's what we're gonna do with our time this morning. We're simply going to walk through our passage, pulling out some observations as we go. Then we'll close, I believe, with the invitation that Jesus is making to us in this passage, and then we'll be done. So let's dig into our text. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open. It's on page, I think, 965 of the Pew Bibles. Feel free to open that one. The words will also be on the screen behind me. If it's not on page 965, I apologize. I'm pretty sure that's the one. In this passage, Jesus basically gives three different illustrations. First, he talks about two different gates. There's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. He describes them a little bit. Second, he talks about two different kinds of fruit. He talks about good fruit and bad fruit. And then third, Excuse me. He talks about two different foundations for a house. You can build your house on rock or you can build your house on sand. Underlying each of these illustrations for Jesus is that there are essentially two kinds of people in the world. And he illustrates that three ways. In the diversity of the beauty, beautiful diversity of creation in particular in humanity, there are but two kinds of people. And so let's look at what he says. In this first illustration, let me read starting in verse 13. Jesus says, he says this, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those that find it are few. Coming out of the body of the sermon that Jesus has been preaching over the course of the past couple of chapters, I'd like to picture 
doesn't say this in the text, but I like to picture pausing, Jesus pausing at the end of his most recent section of teaching and just looking out at his hearers. He's just said a lot. He's given this comprehensive vision of life and human flourishing, and then he pauses and says, now go and enter through the narrow gate. He describes these two gates, the, the wide gate and the narrow gate. And there's a twofold assumption that we can make based on Jesus' words. First, Jesus makes it clear that everyone is going to walk through a gate. There's no one who doesn't walk through a gate. And the second assumption is that there are only two gates to choose from. You'll either choose the narrow gate or you'll choose the wide gate. I'm reminded of going to an Astros game uh, right around game time. If you arrive there, I forget the road that leads right up to Minute Maid Park when you come off the light rail, but there's this crowd of people right at game time and there's thousands of people in the throng. And almost every time, if you look over to the side, you'll see a smaller gate that's got maybe one or two ticket scanners that you can go in. That's, got, that's actually a much shorter line and you can walk over if you're looking for it and get your ticket scanned and be in your seat in five minutes. But most people, of course, don't see it. They're perfectly content to stand with the masses and go through the wide gate. It is, of course, this big, beautiful gate. Um, so that must be important to go through that gate. And that's not, a, of course, a that's not, it's not a perfect analogy, but Jesus is getting at that kind of picture, a large crowd trying to get through a gate. The wide gate is the natural direction of the flow of traffic. There's plenty of space. Because it's such a wide gate, it must be important, so the logic goes. But the wide gate, Jesus warns, leads to destruction. Jesus is using, in this description, he's using a kind of two ways theme that appears throughout the Bible. The way of prosperity, the way of poverty, the way of blessing, the way of cursing. One of the things that appears frequently in the Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament is especially the cry of the one who is trying to be righteous, who looks at the wicked prospering and says, how long, O Lord, will the way of the wicked prosper? And you might be familiar, it's some, the response from the Lord is some version of don't be fooled. That kind of prosperity, that kind of ease, uh, that kind of life is temporary. It'll be taken away in a moment. Don't be fooled. That leads to death and destruction. Then Jesus, to look at the narrow gate that he describes for us, there are three things I think that Jesus points out for us about this narrow gate. First, in order to go through the narrow gate, it must be sought. The gate is narrow, and the narrowness of the gate is not a reference to the fact that the gate is somehow restricted in terms of the number of people who can walk through the gate. In other places, Jesus talks about the many who will be saved. There is plenty of room in this gate and along this way for anyone who would seek it. Instead, though, so, so narrowness isn't talking about the fact that there's people who want to who won't be able to fit because there's only a limited amount of room there. The narrowness is a, is, a fact to the, uh, is, is a reference to the fact that this gate and the way that it accompanies it doesn't just appear easily. It must be sought out. Like that smaller, quicker gate at an Astros game, you won't just stumble onto it. You have to have your eyes and ears open. You have to seek it out. Many will miss it. You who are hearing my words, though, Jesus says, don't miss it. And we, and we can take heart because just before this, in the passage that Dodge preached on last week, Jesus had said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Verse 8, the one who seeks finds to the one who knocks the door is opened. So Jesus gives a clear word of encouragement that if you're seeking, you're going to find it. But here Jesus warns, if you don't seek it, you won't find it. The second thing about this narrow gate is this. He says, this narrow gate, the narrow way is difficult. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. 
The word translated narrow for narrow gate is a word that can also mean pressured or narrowed, forcefully narrowed. It gives this picture of being persecuted or going through seasons of suffering. Jesus is saying, expect persecution along the narrow way. The journey to life is nothing short, as we read elsewhere in the Bible, of taking up your, taking up your cross and following Jesus along the road of suffering. And coming out of the things that Jesus has just talked about throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's not surprising that Jesus acknowledges that this is going to be a hard way of life. To give just one example, think about what Raph, uh, Raph Peters, one of our church planting residents, preached for us a couple of weeks ago. He preached on the passage where Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before you try to point out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Rather than judging from afar, Jesus is saying, we need to draw near to those who, who we think are in the wrong. And this is a picture of intimacy with those you think are wrong. It takes great care to get close enough to a brother to see a speck that is in his eye and to remove it without damaging his eye. You don't beat him over the head with a two by four. You draw, him, you draw close to him to assess and exercise care as you seek to lovingly remove that speck. And this is really hard. Practically, it means that you have to be very patient. You have to listen to someone, ask questions, hear things that you disagree with, but it's the way of Jesus. Ask any healthcare provider, for example, if all a doctor did was chop people open, remove tumors, and then leave, that'd be one thing. But that's not what being a doctor is. First, you have to get an education. Then you have to join a practice. Then you have to meet patients. Then you have to talk with a patient to see if surgery is actually necessary or right for them. Then you have to reassure them that surgery is worth it. Then you have to get a team together to care for them during the surgery. Then you have to talk to them again and reassure them that right before they go under, it's going to be safe. Then you need to actually do the surgery. And then after surgery, you have to address any complications that might arise. You have to walk with them through healing. And then if something goes wrong, you might have to do, do the same exact surgery a, a couple of months later to try to address the problem that you thought was fixed but actually wasn't. And on and on it goes. Being a good doctor is hard work. But I hope that the doctors I go to are good doctors. In the community of faith, think about your brother who slides into gossip too frequently. Your sister who doesn't listen to the feedback that you give her. The guy in your parish whose communication of his political views comes across as offensive, judgmental, impatient, argumentative, and so on. Are you like the doctor who wants to just come in, slice and dice, and walk away? Are you the hypocrite who comes in swinging a two-by-four, never getting close enough to see what's actually really going on? Or are you going to do the patient work of self-examination, repentance, and preparation so that when you draw near to your brother, you can bring words of life and invitation and love rather than words of swift judgment. And that's just one example, along with the many other things that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount that are very hard to put into practice. And so Jesus acknowledges this. He says the way is narrow. The gate is narrow, excuse me, and the way, way is hard. The way of righteousness is hard. You will, not just doing it is hard, but you will incur persecution as you go, you will be mocked as Jesus was. People will be trying to convince you that you're dumb for incurring this pain, that you should just go to the easier way, the way that they do it. It'll be a hard way, but, and this is the third thing that Jesus tells us about this narrow way, take heart because this way leads to life. You must seek it. It will be difficult, but it is ultimately worth it. In seeking to live the way of the kingdom, you are joining with God in his glorious work of restoration and renewal, which will lead to joy in eternity, joy and life and peace. 
This goes for the future of eternity with God, but it also applies to the present. Does it not? Just one example. Uh, Think about conflict in relationships. If you're in a relationship with others and conflict arises, you and I both know that the easy way is to avoid that conflict. And you and I both know that avoiding conflict will lead to some form of relational destruction. If you picture someone who you're in a relationship that's not a very committed relationship, then you'll just stop calling them or they'll stop calling you. And that'll be that, relationship destroyed. If you're in a more committed relationship with someone and you avoid conflict, then that will lead to eventually a person feeling distanced, abandoned, lonely, hurt, that will eventually probably explode, leading to more hurt and frustration before you can seek reconciliation. If, on the other hand, though, you choose the way of reconciliation, which is a hard and uncomfortable way to charge towards conflict rather than away from it, then you know that if you've been through a reconciled conflict, that actually often results in a relationship that's stronger than the relationship was to begin with. It's hard, but it leads to life. Life in the present as well as life in eternity. So in this first illustration of the two gates, Jesus looks at his hearers and says, now that you've heard this vision of the kingdom, enter it. You've heard it all, now enter. Be warned, it is not by looking at those around you that you will find the way to life. So seek it out in earnest. Find my words and my way. Follow me and you will find life. And then he goes on to a second illustration, comparison between two kinds of fruit. And we'll be here for for a few minutes. Let me read starting in verse 15. I'll I'll read through verse 23. Jesus says this. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does my will, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many, many works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Stop there. There's a lot here. But Jesus, in this section, is really getting at one thing. He's trying to communicate with us. Not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is being genuine. Not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is being genuine. And his emphasis here is on leaders. He begins with false prophets. These are those who would step up among God's people. You don't have to search them out. They're going to be there. They're going to come find you. They're going to step up among God's people and purport to teach the people concerning the will of God. And Jesus is saying that they may put on the appearance of Christianity, but it's just a facade. In doing so, they're like wolves who put on sheep's clothing so that they can get close undetected before they attack and devour. Prophets are primarily teachers, and in warning his disciples about false prophets, Jesus' emphasis is on the danger of their words and the fact that while they present themselves as people who want to lead others towards God, in reality, their teachings are leading people away from God. Any who would teach an understanding of the will of God that's not in line with the teachings of Jesus, particularly with respect to his interpretation of the Old Testament, which is the majority of the Sermon on the Mount, these are false prophets. And Jesus would have, in this group of false prophets, he would have included scribes and Pharisees, 
Um, but this is more of a general call. In other places, Jesus is not afraid to call out scribes and Pharisees by name. And so this is more of a general understanding, a general warning for Christians to look out for those, for any, whether that includes some of the scribes and the Pharisees, look out for any who would seek to teach a gospel contrary to the one that I have given you. And how will we know them? It's interesting that rather than referring to some interpretive framework, right, to discern between true and false teachings, Jesus instead just says, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Right? That's not to say that there will be things in their teaching that is alarming, things in their teachings that will raise eyebrows. But Jesus says, you may not even need to examine their teaching. Just look at their way of life. And he helps to clarify what he means by fruit. He calls out three supposed fruits that people may try to use to defend themselves. In verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. And then in verse 22, he says, on that day, many, many will say to me, oh, I've been doing the will of God. Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many, many works in your name? Jesus points out these three things that would have been happening kind of all over the place at this time, as if to say, and he, and he points them out to say, these things aren't actually that special. Prophesying is a reference to, like I said, teaching or preaching. And preachers often quote from scripture, right, claiming to know about the future as some prophecy is, or know about how God's will applies to a present moment as other forms of prophecy. This happened quite frequently back then. And many teachers knew the scriptures back in front and they abused them. It happens, of course, even today. De speaking about casting out demons, people being demonized or indwelt by unseen evil spirits in a way that made them unable to fully control their actions is a pretty regular occurrence in the New Testament. And Jesus and his disciples regularly cast out demons over the course of their ministry. With that said, exorcists, as they're called otherwise, exorcists were also common in the ancient Near East. There were Jewish exorcists. There were other Greco-Roman religions that raised up exorcists and they could cast out demons. The difference with Jesus and his disciples was that Jesus demonstrated a unique directness, immediacy, and effectiveness in casting out demons. But there were others who could do this too. Mighty works would have referred to those who work various kinds of miracles like miraculous healings or if you think about the Bible, go back to the story of Moses in the Exodus when he goes into Pharaoh and he turns his, God says, I'll turn your stick into, your, your staff into a snake. And remember what the magicians for the Pharaoh do, they do the same thing. They're able to turn their staffs into snakes as well. And of course, Moses' snake gobbles up all of their snakes. But, um, but that's, a, that's a way, and there's other, there's other examples in Acts chapter 19, Revelations 13, that describe that we are reminded, as one commentator puts, that signs and wonders can come from sources other than God, including both the demonic world and human manufacture. And so, all that to say is that these apparently mighty works might seem to validate the presence of God with a person, but they're actually not altogether that special. Jesus wants to communicate those things are secondary to a much more pedestrian list of qualifications. Things like virtuous living, healthy relationships with God and with others, unselfish social behavior, and so on. You may be familiar with the various lists of qualifications for pastors of Christian, the, the Christian church from elsewhere in the New Testament. None of these three things are listed as qualifications for pastors. Pastors don't need to prophesy or cast out demons. 
or work wondrous miracles in order to be pastors. If you think about the whole Sermon on the Mount, this very passage is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus refers to any of those three things. So the vision of the kingdom of God can not include those three things. Of course, the performance of these works is not evidence that someone is a false teacher. Of course, Jesus and his disciples did these three things. Jesus is simply saying, to borrow the words of another commentator, don't be caught up with the glitz of charismatic activity in a way that substitutes enthusiasm and the spectacular for more unglamorous obedience in the midst of suffering. It's wonderful when God performs a miraculous work of healing to demonstrate his love and care for his people. It is wonderful, right? When someone is freed from a demonic presence, it is wonderful when uh, uh, someone is able to speak prophetically into your life in a special word of encouragement. It's a wonderful thing, but do not mistake these things for the real, th- real fruit that point to God's presence. Instead, consider the things that Jesus focuses on in the Sermon on the Mount. Can the person who is proposing to teach you about the things of God, can that person be described as poor in spirit? Can they be described as a peacemaker? Is this person slow to speak, quick to reconcile? Do they care for the poor and needy? Do they live lives of patience, of prayer? Or is this person quick to speak, quick to argue, quick to cast judgment on others? Does this person seek to self-justify rather than truly repent? Is this person's relational life marked by argument, strife, and distance, or even just non-intimacy with anyone in their life? And now before I move on, there's a clarification that I think is really important to make. Uh, And Sojourn members, I want to talk to you for just a moment. Taking Jesus at his word here does not mean that the Christian life is a wolf hunt. We need to take Jesus seriously but we also must remember that taking him seriously doesn't mean that our life is a wolf hunt together. Let me explain. While hypocrisy is certainly can be evidence that someone is a wolf, to use the term that Jesus uses in this passage, hypocrisy doesn't mean that someone is definitely a wolf. There is an inner ravenous nature to wolves that seeks to divide, devour, destroy, and we must always be vigilant in looking for these things. But we must not be hasty to make this designation. Each of us demonstrates hypocritical tendencies. And just because someone sounds like that second list that I just gave doesn't mean that they are a wolf. I am so grateful that in my earlier Christian life, people didn't see my more rampant pride and hypocrisy call me a wolf and kick me out. I'm grateful even now as a pastor that when my sin rears its head, people don't look at me and call me a wolf and kick me out. By God's grace, I've had brothers and sisters around me throughout my Christian life who have loved me, who have been patient with me, who have been gentle, but who have been clear in calling me to repentance. Like Jesus throughout the sermon up to this point is giving a word of invitation, calling us to repentance and faith. Jesus is saying, look out for wolves, but he is doing so in the context of inviting a crowd full of prideful people to repent and follow him. And so as we consider applying these words of Jesus to the life of our church, while you should be aware of false teachers, you do not need to be afraid of anyone, whether they're a false teacher or not. What do you do when you see bad fruit? Well, the good news is that addressing people whose lives are out of line with scripture is one of the most explicit teachings that Jesus gives about what life looks like in the context of the church. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, 
Jesus gives instructions for what to do if a brother or sister is in sin. You approach them one-on-one. If they don't listen to you, you bring one or two others and you approach them. If they still don't listen, then you bring them before the church, which means bring them before the elders so that that can be addressed. We are to trust the Holy Spirit's presence as we walk faithfully through this escalation process and always involve others if you are uncomfortable. It's not skipping step one if you are uncomfortable about a person and you want to say, hey, can we have this conversation in a place where I'm surrounded with people like before or after a church gathering or before or after a parish gathering? Or to ask someone, maybe your parish leader, to come with you for a conversation. Always involve someone else if you feel uncomfortable. I've been a part of conversations that have ended with the conclusion that a person is actually exhibiting wolf-like tendencies and the elders have given a firm word of rebuke. I've also been part of the conversations where this was the concern going in and the conclusion was instead that this person just needed a different kind of approach to calling them to repentance. The escalation process that Jesus gives us is a beautiful gift. So try it yourself. Knowing that your first attempt might not work. Don't be upset if your first attempt doesn't work. Just follow the process. Bring someone else in, then bring them before the elders. Situations like this reach the elders more often than you might think, but very rarely do they make it all the way to the end. I think twice, maybe, in the life of 10 years of our church. I say that to say this, Sojourn, your pastors have been called to protect our flock, and we take this very seriously, right? If you're ever in doubt, please come talk to me, come talk to one of the other pastors, talk to your parish leader. We will take that very seriously every single time. But don't be anxious. Don't be afraid of anyone in our church. Know that taking Jesus at his word doesn't mean that we need to be on this never-ending wolf hunt. We must be aware of hypocrisy. We must be particularly aware of hypocrisy in people who want a teaching platform. But the heart behind any interaction with someone who is out of line with God's word must be one of warning them with love to repent and turn more fully to Jesus. You do want to protect your brothers and sisters. And if you come face to face with unrepentance, the best way to deal with that is to follow Jesus's instructions in Matthew 18. Walk up that escalation process. You can't ignore sin because addressing sin ensures that sin doesn't fester and grow and cause more damage and hurt. But with professing believers, believers, excuse me, the right posture is one of gentle, loving, engaging, calling them to repentance. You might be dealing with a wolf or you might just be the first person in someone's life to love them enough to look them in the eye and get get to know them well enough and call them to repentance. You might be the first person who's done that for them. And this is the hard way. It may take weeks, it may take months, it may take years. It's way easier to just judge someone up front and be done with them. But let us not be people who choose the easy road and make hasty conclusions about those in our midst. As we engage with one another intentionally, following the pattern of Jesus, taking one another's sin seriously, engaging it with love, wisdom, and trust in the Lord, any wolves who come into our midst will either see a well-protected flock and leave on their own, or if they're foolish enough, they'll stay long enough to be addressed by the elders. And now zooming back out to this section of our passage. Remember that Jesus is making the point that not everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is being genuine. That's what Jesus is getting at. And while his emphasis is on teachers and leaders, there is certainly something in it for all of us. 
Jesus says in verse 21 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are some who will point to the things that they had supposedly done for the Lord. And in response, Jesus will say in verse 23, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. In saying, I never knew you, Jesus is using the biblical understanding of the word to know. He's not talking about, I was never aware of you. He's simply saying that there is no significant link between the two of us. Right? No intimate relationship of faith and trust ever existed. And so in observing this, we see that Jesus is basically repeating the idea that true Christians cannot lose their salvation. This isn't, I knew you once, but then you got distracted. This is Jesus saying, I never knew you. So perhaps you're able to fool many here on earth, but you can't fool me, Jesus says. There are those who profess with their lips that they are serving Jesus. It's an easy thing to say, Lord, Lord. But entrance into the kingdom isn't about knowing the password, the name of Jesus. It's about relationship, trust, surrender. Calling Jesus Lord implies serious engagement with and for him. If that serious engagement is absent, the ring calls hollow, or excuse me, the, the, the call rings hollow. And Jesus says it will be treated as such. The call to, to truly call upon the name of the Lord and be saved is a call that involves all of your life. We don't just listen to Jesus's words, admire them, and then acknowledge him as Lord with our lips without uh, addressing our manner of living. In the words of one commentator, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. As we read in James chapter one, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So hearing is what Jesus's followers have been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount up until this point. And now as Jesus turns to them to close, he says, go, you've heard a lot. Now go and do what it is that I've told you to do. And this is so important for us to hear even today. You have probably all heard of TED Talks. They've been around for over a decade now. If you've never heard of a TED Talk, go to ted.org and watch one. Um, They're great. They're all online and free. They're these excellently crafted short talks aimed at sharing some idea or perspective in a, in a particularly moving and excellent way. And they've been around long enough that there's actually now TED Talks that make fun of TED Talks. Uh, and there's this one of these making fun of TED Talks, TED Talks, a man named Will Stevens opens his five-minute TED Talk on sounding smart when giving a TED Talk by saying this. He says, through my manner of speaking, you will feel like you've learned something. His point, though, is not so much about his manner of speaking. It's about the hearer. There's something in us. The truth is that all too often, if we are listening to an excellent communicator, we can be fooled into thinking that we've actually learned something even when we haven't. There was this study done a number of years ago on giving a group of test subjects two different lectures. Part of the group was given a lecture. It was both, they were both about cat genetics. And they took the same content and had it delivered two different ways. One was by a very well-spoken, polished, memorized speaker. The other was by the same person who looked at, broke all the Toastmasters rules, looked at the notes, kind of stammered through, but the exact same words and content, exact same manuscript. And coming out of it, they, they quizzed the, the two groups of participants on how much they learned from the talk. And they asked them how well they thought they did on the quiz. And the st- what, what, 
what the outcome of this study was, was that the style of speech didn't actually seem to affect how much the audience learned. They, they tested the exact same on how much they learned from the talks, but the fluency group that had received the TED Talk style polished talk thought they did way better than the other group did. And so students' perceptions of their own learning and an instructor's effectiveness appear to be based on lecture fluency and not on actual learning. So here's the thing, the eloquent, engaging speaker didn't actually teach better. Even worse, she left the audience with the impression that they had actually learned more than they did. So did you catch that? The audience was left thinking that simply because they listened to an excellent lesson that they had learned more than they actually did. And Jesus, here at the end of his sermon, knows that if we're not careful, we will come away from his teaching thinking that if we heard it and thought it was great, then we will be foolishly confident in thinking that we are on account of that thought that we had, we are closer to God and closer to the kingdom. And so Jesus digs down into the heart of the human condition and says, be careful. Just like God said through Moses to God's people when he first gave the law on Mount Sinai, Jesus says, do not just hear these words, but do them for by them you will find life. And so more briefly, let's look, with the, look at the final section. That's what Jesus goes into, into his final section. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. End of sermon. Jesus' picture that he's giving is one of, of course, two houses, and his focus is on the foundation. That there's only one house that does not fall when the storm comes, and that's the one whose house, verse 25, is founded on the rock. So what does this mean? This is a familiar image in ancient Palestine. Uh, there was lots of sand. It was in the middle of the desert. Um, it's not, don't picture uh, like sand like in the beach picture like a kind of dirty looking grass covered sand dune. The wise person uh, is the one who finds a secure rock to build his house because there's a lot of flash floods in ancient Palestine when the rains came. And the foolish person is the one who builds directly on the sand saying it's perfectly fine today. The thing is, it might be just fine for a time. Right? You might be able to build a house and live in it for some time before a flood comes. But when the storm comes, Jesus says, which is inevitable, and here Jesus is referring to the final judgment. This is where he breaks out of the metaphor. When that storm comes, that house will be utterly destroyed. It won't be damaged to be repaired later. It'll be swept away entirely. And Jesus isn't talking in this about some temporary flurry of good deeds after you've heard this sermon. He's not talking about making sure there's enough seasons in your life where you're trying hard enough to offset the bad seasons in your life. He's talking about all of your life. He says, find the rock, not just for a bomb shelter that's there when you need it, but to serve as the foundation for the whole house, your whole life. What does wisdom look like? What is Jesus using this illustration to communicate? Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so to summarize, Jesus' final words in this Sermon on the Mount are words of warning and words of invitation. 
He looks around and says, friends, I have just shared with you words that if you live by them, you will find life. But the entrance to this life is not easy. It's not as simple as listening to a TED talk and being puffed up in your self-perception as a smarter and wiser person. It takes searching, seeking after a gate in a way that is narrow and that is not easy. And as you go on your way, you will hear a lot of people telling you a lot of things. You'll hear people telling you that it doesn't have to be this hard. You'll hear people telling you that there are all kinds of ways to get what you're looking for without having to go the hard way. But you must know that there are only two ways. There's the wide and easy way, and there's the narrow and hard way. Look at those people who are presenting themselves as teachers and look at the fruit of their lives. Do they bear the marks in their life of their suffering Savior? Or does their life look like they see themselves as above their Savior who suffered for them? Do they bear the fruit of the kingdom that Jesus has talked about throughout the sermon, or do they look little different from the world around them? As you consider, then, what you will do from here, Jesus closes. He says, consider the house that you're building. What are you building on? You must know that Jesus is not telling us to tear down our house and build a brand new one just the right way. He's not telling us to build some new covenant tower of Babel to work our way up to heaven. What Jesus is calling us to is he's calling us to abandon one way completely and seek another. See the futility of the way of the world, the way of self-reliance, the wide gate that leads to destruction that's at the end of that way. And in that moment of exasperation with an utmost understanding of your need and inability to save yourself, turn towards the kingdom of God. This is repentance. It is in your seeking after God in bringing him only your need that you will finally begin building the house on the rock. A common reading of the Sermon on the Mount, especially within Protestant circles, is that this sermon is a call from Jesus that is so high in its demands that it is meant only to bring us to the point of seeing the impossibility of being good and thus cause us to flee to Christ for his imputed righteousness. And the problem is that, of course, while that is based on biblical truth, that we are unable to save ourselves and that inability should throw us at the feet of Christ so that we can receive his imputed righteousness, that is true. The problem is that that reading of the Sermon on the Mount is just a misunderstanding of the genre and what Jesus is doing. It misses the point of his sermon. In this sermon, Jesus is giving us wisdom from God and wisdom is meant to be exercised. It is not a harsh reality that is meant to cause us to be depressed and self-flagellate. It is an invitation, a gracious invitation from the Lord to pursue the way of life today even as it will be in the future age when Christ returns and ushers in the renewal of all things. Yes, it is impossible for anyone except Jesus himself to perfectly fulfill the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't mean that this teaching is irrelevant for our lives. Every word, every statement is meant to meaningfully inform our life of discipleship as we live in this world for the sake of God's kingdom. Of course, we need more than this sermon and praise God that we have more than just this sermon in the Bible. We have a whole Bible that brings us to the real point of the story, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? In his faithful suffering on the cross on account of the sins of the world, he ushers in this new covenant between God and humanity, making a way that is entirely by God's grace for us to be made alive, empowered by the Holy Spirit, welcomed into the community of faith and begin the journey and the way to life. And it is this community of faith standing in the grace that Jesus died 
in order to offer us that we look into the words of this beautiful Sermon on the Mount and wrestle together to respond to his invitation one step at a time on the arduous journey that is the life of faith, the journey unto light. And this is not in order to get grace from God, quite the opposite. Being a disciple of Jesus is the appropriate and necessary response to God's amazing grace for us. And this Sermon on the Mount plays a crucial role in understanding that relationship rightly. And so when you fail in your pursuit of righteousness as Jesus invites you to, you simply look at him who didn't fail for you and who died in order to give you his righteousness. Remember how Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. He didn't say blessed are the righteous. He said blessed are those who thirst for righteousness for their thirst shall be satisfied. He will give us righteousness. My mind goes to Psalm 23, the famous Lord is my shepherd Psalm of David, where he talks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then David says this, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's this intimate picture of God, a good shepherd who leads him along paths of righteousness, not a man, David, who says, man, I need to be righteous so that God can look at me and love me. It's a man who is intimately held in the hand of a father who loves him, who's being guided along paths of righteousness. And so sojourn, let's spend our lives together wrestling with Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount together. Let's wrestle with them. Consider the invitation that Jesus is making in our passage. If this teaching is going to actually change our lives and change the world around us, we must pursue obedience to it. It's not just a teaching to be admired, throw our hands up and then go about our lives. It's a teaching that's meant to inform our lives together, but it is not a teaching that is meant to lead us to a place of justification. It is from our known love of God, from a right understanding that the way that you seek and find is through the drawing of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's power to walk in a way that is faithful unto the Lord. And as we walk together, in our life sojourn, may we constantly spur one another on to greater and greater faithfulness, asking with each passing day, what is not a hundred steps down the road of being super right, what is the next step of faithfulness that the Lord is inviting me to on this journey? Because we're all on a journey together. We're in different places in different seasons, but we can always ask one another, not what should everyone do all the time, but what is the next thing that the Lord is inviting you to in faithfulness today? And so I want to pray that the Lord would reveal that to us as we seek to live in line with this teaching. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your teaching in uh, your word for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what is true, correct in us what is false, give us life by your word of truth, and show us, Lord, the way to life. We are coming before you together, humbled to be before your throne, but drawing near to you with confidence as you have invited us. And we're asking that you would help us to seek this narrow way. I pray that you would reveal to each person in this room, myself included, would you reveal to each of us what is the next step of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus? What is the next right thing that you are calling us to do. And empower us, Lord. Show us what that is. Empower us to walk in that way today, trusting you with tomorrow. We pray that you would be glorified in our mutual efforts, that you would build us together in more love and gentleness and patience with one another, and that you would help us to, as a people, invite people 
into our life together, into this communion table that we were about to sit around together, that you would help us to invite people into this loving relationship with you. We pray for your glory, for our good, for the good of the world around us. In Christ's name, amen.